You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker, Rob Carver, and me, Nils Kastelarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, let me start by saying welcome, with the hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity and hunger for learning, enough to check out the back catalog and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation last week with Mark where we discuss topics like inflation, behavioral finance, and how firms need to retool for the AI revolution. A fascinating conversation that I hope you will check out if you have missed it. Good morning, Jerry. Good afternoon, Rob. Great to be back with you this week. How are you guys doing? How are things where you are? Oh, it's nice here in Florida. It's early. I'm drinking my coffee, so I get in trouble tweeting late at night with the red wine. But I can still get in trouble with coffee as well. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, I got in trouble for drinking too much coffee on an earlier episode as well. So I'm, I'm trying to ration myself. But it's really, really good to be here on, on with Jerry as well, as this is the first time we've, we've done it with the, the three of us. So I'm really excited. Yes, it's the first time. And it's uh, something that I think a lot of people have been uh, waiting for with anticipation. So yes, I'm looking forward to this as well. In terms of a quick market wrap, the week as a whole, again, was driven by Fed news in the bond markets. Powell once again failed to address a number of pressing issues like T-bill yields, yield curve steepening, bond buying it in his Wall Street Journal virtual press conference, which uh, was held on Thursday. The 10-year note repo traded as low as minus 4%. Now, such a situation exists when short sellers aren't able to borrow the bonds to make delivery. Now, this is a situation that is not unlike what happened in GameStop last month, but there's a big difference because the Treasury will reopen something around $38 billion of the same 10-year note next week. So we shouldn't expect any significant short squeeze rally here. And lastly, we had the Minneapolis Fed president, Kashkari, who said that if real rates spike, it may warrant more easing. It's almost like if he doesn't quite understand that real rates usually rise when the economy is accelerating. But let's hope that that he really does realize this. As mentioned before, perhaps the most important topic investors have to plan for right now is the potential shift for a change in the 40-year regime of deflation uh, pressures and ever-falling interest rates to potentially a number of years ahead with inflationary pressures and also a shift in the interest rate cycle. Many investors have had their portfolio either knowingly or unknowingly set up for lower yields and have done really well in many years up until now. However, infl inflation is not going to look kindly on a portfolio like that. So I have a feeling that that is a topic that we will come back to on a regular basis on the podcast. But I want to start with you, Rob, today, since it's been a little while longer since uh, you were here compared to uh, Jerry. What stood out to you in the last few weeks? What's been going on in your portfolio? Not great news, to be honest with you. I'll just give you some really quick numbers first, just for context, really. So if I look at the, the last week or so, then I'm down 2.4%. If I look at the time since I, I last sort of spoke to you guys, 
then I'm down about 2.6, so pretty similar. Uh, so year-to-date is minus 3.8. And it really is very much, particularly not so much in the last week or so, but the sort of few weeks before that, it was all about the bonds, in particular in euro dollars, where I had a reasonably sizable position. And when, when rates obviously sold off, that hurt me quite a lot. So that's probably where most, most of my losses were. In the last week, there's been a bit of a little bit of a rebound and uh, made a little bit of money on euro dollar. But of course, I've got a much smaller position now because, of course, you know, when, when the sell-off happened due to the vol spiking and, of course, the trend reversing, I would have reduced my position dramatically. So I've only got a few euro dollar contracts now. So I didn't make, you know, anywhere near as much money back as I, I lost. But, you know, that, that's trend following. That's the way it goes, I guess. Really across the board, then, just, just a pretty mixed performance, to be honest. And no, nothing else really stands out. I think, for me at least, this month really has been all about the, the fixed income market, which... For me, it's kind of interesting because, you know, that, that's my background originally. So uh, I, I've been watching all this stuff with uh, some keen interest. Yeah, maybe we'll dig into that also a little bit later. And what about you, Jerry, the last couple of weeks? Anything that has uh, stood out to you? Uh, stood out, I would say, um, certainly hitting short the bonds, bond futures. I added some bond ETFs to my portfolio, muni bonds, mortgage back tips, high-yield junk, corporate. So one of those, the corporate ETF, got short. It's not as weak as uh, all of the normal 10 years that I trade. I just trade the 10 years in all the different countries, not Korea. I think Rob tried to help me with Korea, but I can't, I can't trade Korea in the U.S. So anyways, that's what stood out. It was standing the drawdowns and the LME. It's no fun. The drawdown in the currency positions, the longs versus the short dollar, that got worse as the week went on. And then the Bitcoin drawdown and then rally. You know, I don't even look at Bitcoin. It's so outrageous every day. I just cross my fingers and hope it's still in an uptrend. So anyways, it's a lot of volatility and a lot of profit give back. I'm sure we're still up double digits for the year. It's just been an amazing run that uh, simple breakout trend following has done well when finally the markets do well. So that's our fate. Is uh, If they're great, great trends, I'll make some money. But I really need the markets to do all the work for me so I can just sit back and really do nothing. And maybe just uh, a, a quick question, uh, Jerry, on uh, follow-up on the ETF. How do you go short the ETFs if you're trading ETFs? How do you go short that if your signal turns? Uh, we trade the stocks and the you know ETFs at IB, and we just okay. go short just like we do... Um, you know, we had a short recently in Domino's Pizza. So you just have to look up on the IB website whether you can go short and what uh, the hell, do, do they have enough shares for you to borrow? Okay. And we get our leverage at IB for the longs and the shorts stocks just as if it was a futures market. In a short, no, no difference. Yeah. Just figure out the mechanics and do it. Sure. No. Okay. I get it. That's great. On our side, we had a positive week. For the first week of March in both our trend following program and our volatility program. Trend following performance was mainly coming from two sectors, really, the energies and the stocks, both putting in a strong showing. Currencies were the most difficult for us with the US dollar gaining some strength. And then we had soft and metals, where we also saw small corrections. And then grains managed to produce a small gain for us. But all in all, a small positive so far in the trend space. In the world of volatility, 
We did see a significant pickup in realized volatility this week, and the size of the daily moves in the S&P 500 also increased, of course. On Monday, for example, the VIX had a 4.6 points move lower from 27.95 to 23.35, with the S&P up 2.4%. And that's actually the largest one-day jump in more than six months. And all in all, our volatility strategy was able to extract a small profit from this change of scenery, so to speak, in the vol space. For my own trend-following model portfolio, where I can be a little bit more granular, so to speak, it was a slight down week, down 22 basis points, which leaves the year-to-date return of 5.17%. Performance so far this month comes from the Group 2 models up 0.65 of a percent. Group 1 and 3 are slightly down 0.31 and 0.54 respectively for the month. Sector attributions this month, energy is doing the best, followed by grains and the laggers this month so far are equities and base metals. And then if you look at the single markets, then it's really down to the energies, Brent, heating oil and crude doing well. Actually, also the yen did pretty well. And on the downside, we have the DAX, we have copper, we have Nikkei as the worst three markets this month. And finally, in terms of um, changes to the model this week, we did see the model exit some copper midweek. It tried to buy a bit of DAX for one of the faster reacting models. And then on Thursday, it exited a bit more copper and lead, as well as platinum. And on Friday, which was the busiest week with seven trades, one of the models reversed its euro position and went short. It took some profits in British pounds and it went short the yen, as well as reducing its long Nikkei position. All in all, in terms of risk, the risk to stop moved in a little bit further. It's down to 8.24% if everything gets stopped out tomorrow, and that's down from 9.02% a week ago. About 14 trades all in all uh, for the week, so nothing to that's going to build up any sweat. Pretty easy to follow. Now, we have a few great questions coming in from uh, Rene, Michael, Doogie, Gustavo. But before we go to those, I wanted to start out with a few points that Jerry had raised in our preparation for our conversation today. And of course, Rob, you may also have some of your points that you want to bring up. But I thought these were really interesting. And of course, some of it ties back to the whole point about making sure we got you two together because there are some of these topics that you don't necessarily agree on. So that's going to be interesting. Now, the first thing that I remember was this conversation we had, I think, back in November, closed equity versus open equity and total equity. And I wonder whether, Jerry, you might be able to set the scene a little bit because it is one of those things where you and certainly also Moritz have one way of doing it and and Rob does it in a different way. So do you want to set the scene about where we want to start on this topic today? Yeah, so this is one of my favorite topics. And uh, so Rob did a good job against Moritz. So we gotta, I got to come in and uh, see if two of us can't try to defeat poor old Rob on this subject. We're not going to change his mind, but uh, I'm trying to distract him with all these birds I have flying around me this morning. And um, He's not joking, guys, that there really are birds <laughs> sitting on, on Jerry's shoulder at this moment. Yes. True. They're very, they're, they're eating my power cords. So I'm uh, distracted by the one here. But anyways, I went back and uh, listened to the November 27th podcast. Very good. I mean, probably my favorite podcast of the week to get uh, to the uh, question at the end of the show. But 
was really good. And I downloaded the transcript. You know, you can get the transcripts off of uh, YouTube. So it was really good. And uh, I think a lot of the kind of confusion or dis there is definitely going to be disagreement, but uh, some of it is just based upon semantics and uh, getting choosing the right words or better words. So anyways, I just thought I would cut to the chase and say that the, the term closed equity is kind of, um, it's not as clear as it could be, but uh, just listening to what Rob had said, I would say that um, the point that I think Moritz and I are trying to make is that there is a difference between, an obvious difference between closed equity and total equity or open trade equity. And um, I sum it up by saying, like, if you have an, a client who gives you a million dollars to trade and he immediately, you immediately lose 100,000, you're down 10%, that's quite nerve wracking for the client. And I see for me too, versus the client is, uh, he, that same million is now 1.2 million, but you've experienced a 20% drawdown. So it was 1.4. Now it's only 1.2. He is marked to market. I mean, we're embracing mark to market and it's not a problem. And, but psychologically and maybe money management wise to sort of feel a little bit better about being up 200,000 or 20%, but in the midst of a 20% drawdown, seems to be worthwhile in a reasonable way to look at things versus being down only 10%, but you're down to 900,000. So I think this initial investment that people make or is CTAs and trend following does a very good job of defending that line, that uh, initial investment and saying, hey, you know, we're going to take these small losses. We're going to be very conservative. Uh, we're going to risk 50 basis points and try not to have a drawdown on that initial investment. But the system, when we backtested it, it told us, hey, I'm going to do this. And this is what really works well. And it's a character and a feature of trend following that it does a fairly good job with uh, one entry, one exit, and a stop loss, let's say, of defending that initial investment. But it says also that, hey, I'm not going to do the same thing with this 100-day breakout exit or 50-day breakout exit, I'm going to let those profits run. So when we get the results back from the back test, we're encouraged, but it's not something that I've come up with or Moritz has come up with. It is basically what the trend-following model does on its, uh, on its own. It holds those losses for a month or two, and it holds those winners for nine months to years sometimes and lets those profits run and pays no attention to the volatility necessarily of those open trades. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think this is one of these things that is, as Jerry says, very much a discussion about semantics and what you mean by that. So I kind of agree that it's so people hate it more if, if they give you money and the first thing you do is lose some of it, right? I mean, that, and they, they certainly feel better if you've already made them 100% and then the 10% loss comes. And so, you know, if, if I was managing somebody else's money, that there might even be a case for possibly even varying your your risk target as you you know as you make money and actually AHL where I used to work did actually have some funds that did this explicitly and they had to do this because they were offering a guaranteed structure so the way the guaranteed structure would work is you know the investor gives you $100 you'd use $60 of that to buy a zero coupon bond with a certain maturity and then you'd use the rest to trade futures with and of course because futures are very efficient margin wise that would be enough to give you the you know the leverage and the size of positions you needed but one consequence of that was we were trading as if we had $100 of capital, 
but really we only had 40. So we had to be extremely defensive of that 40. And if we started to dip into that, then we, we had to start cutting our positions very quickly because, you know, the, the, the kind of worst case scenario is you completely deplete that $40 and you're just left with a zero coupon bond, which provides the guarantee to the investor, of course. But you, you can't go any further than that because, you, you know, you've legally given them this, this guarantee. So that that's one thing. But to me, that's not necessarily to do with whether you're treating open trades and closed trades differently because you can you can build in that kind of psychological protection into your system regardless of how how you're trading open and closed trades you could like I said just do something really simple which is just start with a very low risk target and then increase it gradually as you make money for your investor so that's kind of I can understand where you're coming from but I'm not sure it has to do with open and closed equity if I'm being completely honest I mean I do think there's definitely a kind of psychological human bias that people like to have like to have profits banked, definitely. And that's one of the reasons why trend following works, right? Because we are willing to hang on to those trades as they make money rather than just cutting and running as soon as there's a small profit, right? That's that's the psychological bias that we're exploiting. So human beings do treat open and closed equity different. So to me, but to me that's the reason why a system shouldn't do it, right? Why a system should not explicitly actually change the way it behaves depending on whether a particular position has, has made money or not. Now, if you actually look at how uh, my system behaves and the, actually the way it behaves, it does exactly the same thing as Jerry's system, system does. It does hold on to winning trades for longer, and that's purely just a consequence of the way trend following works. But it does that without any explicit change in, in, in sort of behavioural state, regardless of whether the, the position is you know, is it is profitable or unprofitable? So um, we kind of get to the same place, perhaps through a different kind of thought process. But to me, it's not necessary to introduce this distinction between open and closed equity into my system to get the results that I want. Yeah, I was just going to say, Jerry, because I think I want to put a little bit of color here, not to necessarily raise the temperature, but I just want to make sure that because I re- I kind of remember the conversation, and I think some of the statements that were made back then was, you know, we treat. And obviously, Jerry wasn't there, but but I think Moritz talked about treating open equity more liberally. And actually, in the conversation I had with Jerry a couple of weeks ago, which was really fascinating, Jerry explained, and I think this it made a lot of sense, is how he changes his trade level differently than certainly we do on our side, where we adjust it you know, every month or every day and, and so on and so forth. So I think the debate is kind of, or the differences might be, around those kind of levels, for example, as simply as, you know, when to change your trade level, when do you recognize that now you're trading a larger account or a smaller account for that matter, things like that, if I remember correctly. Yeah, trade level definitely figures into it. But I just wanted to answer that one thing that Rob said. So I don't think that we're the ones introducing anything. Now, that's quite the opposite. It's like I said, with the cliche of uh, building on that cliche of let your profit take small losses and let your profits run. We just buy the breakout on the entry, sell the breakout on the exit, and put a 50 basis point uh, stop on the system and uh, multiple ATRs from the entry price. So then the back test comes back and says, wow, I'm going to get out of profit sooner, and I'm going to let the profits run. I'm going to get out of losses sooner, I'm going to let the profits run, and look at all that volatility. And we're just like, Moritz and I are like, okay, that's the problem. We're like, we're doing a good job of defending the trade level, the initial investment. And then 
I just wanted to emphasize initial investment, but of course, closed equity is also incorporating the realized profits and losses. You can't forever sit there and say, well, it was in a million dollar investment five years ago. No, we got to hold ourselves to a higher standard and add to that initial investment, the realized profits and losses. No, far from it. It's not Moritz and I who are adding anything. We're just observing this simple cliche trend following. And I'm never for cliches. And if, if someone wants to say, I haven't seen this on Twitter yet, but if in response to take small losses and let your profits run, if some smart guy gets out there and says, no, 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 let me show you where that's wrong. Okay, I'm, I'm down with that. Just Let's look at your research. Let's look at your back test. But what's being added to the system is this vol target, this uh, risk control, uh, not from Moritz and I. We're, we're saying, no, don't do that. You're treating open trade equity. You're trying to massage these open profits. There was an article yesterday about um, classic trend following versus hybrid trend following a Hedge Nordic article, and um, one of the people in the article said, well, we don't have any classic people, but classic people would have held on to those LME positions last week. Yeah, they were very volatile. They're very scary. What if it goes back down to the 100-day low? Oh, my God, it's going to be horrible. But uh, the more hybrid, more evolved traders, uh, they've figured out a way to have it both ways. Well, we do have a trailing stop that's at a 100-day low or whatever, but we also are not going to, we're going to take some off. We're going to add some more back on based upon uh, the volatility possibly or just you know, this open trade. And so Moritz and I are saying, I know, uh, you're right. If it works, it's, it's much better. It's much better. But we're sort of saying, yeah, we're going to on purpose trade a worse system. It's going to look worse on the back test in order to not introduce more sample size problems and variables and parameters and things like that. So... We understand everything about what people are doing. We understand we have made a very unpopular choice. Another thing I tweeted was classical trend following people, they can co complain about um, the, the vol targeting and the heavy duty risk management that gets in the way of the pure trade, but they have a lot less AUM than the more hybrid, more evolved type traders. Yeah, so we're getting more to the nub now of where we disagree, I think. So, um... I guess the, the difference between us is you guys put a trade on of a certain size based on the risk that's there when the position's opened, and then you kind of leave it at that size. Is that is that That's kind of a fair characterization. You're nodding, so that's fine. Yes. So, the, and the difference, of course, is that, that, that um, I'd say, well, actually, what I'm trying to do is continuously risk manage my position and my entire book, really, to, to have a certain level of risk. And... Um, what that involves, of course, means that if the risk of a position changes, and I already talked about it earlier, I said Eurodollar got very much riskier, and that was one of the reasons why I reduced my position. Another reason was the trend started to reverse in, in the faster signals, and of course, that would naturally reduce the position anyway, right? So yeah, it's, it, it is a difference of, and I've said this before, I don't think one way is better or worse, or, and I'm not sure about popular or unpopular, I don't think this is a, a popularity contest, but um different ways of doing things and they end up with different sort of risk characteristics. I mean, I gave a presentation last week actually about people who go even further than I do and actually adjust their book every single day so it has the same level of expected risk. And I personally, for me, that's going too far because what you do when you do that, the main thing you lose is the fact that, say, say you're trend following, you've only got a small number of positions on or the positions are very small in size because the trends aren't very strong. Well, the risk of your book is naturally going to be very low. 
To me, that's a good thing. Why would I want to be putting money on the table when, when um, the opportunities aren't there? But what these guys would do is actually then leverage up those positions so that they were hitting the same risk target every day. And to me, that doesn't make any sense. And so that's more what I'd call the, the kind of the kind of quant equity market neutral hedge fund kind of way of doing things. Whereas, as you say, Jerry, you're more the kind of the old school trend follower. And I guess I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle in that I do think um, for me personally, I'd, I would like to do risk management on, of my open positions, but I'm not going to do that to the extent that I'm destroying the the ability of the system to actually attenuate forecasts depending on whether there are you know opportunities there or not so how often would you do that Rob? um well i mean it's every single every time i trade the i'm looking ah, at the okay. the current volatility of that market and if necessary some of my trading may be an adjustment as a result of that so yeah sorry jerry you were going to say yes sir yeah so to state the obvious of course i think we all look at the volatility when we do a new trade you know so when i was shorting corporate bond ETF, I looked at the ATR, plugged it into my equation and determined uh, the number of short position I should have in that uh, ETF and uh, you know, would do that. But then once we are done, and that ATR calculation, the position size, it only has uh, one use, and that is to normalize the size of the losses. I want to lose 50 bips of my AUM on every trade. But other than that, I mean, it's going to double, triple, quadruple. It's going to get totally out of control, Tesla, gold, Bitcoin. You know, what was the ATR in Bitcoin? Oh, my gosh. It's crazy. But um, I would also say that, use another cliche, and that is um, you can't eliminate risk. It just goes somewhere else. So by eliminating, where does that risk go? Which I don't think it's risk. My risk was taking that small loss, open trade equity, uh, open trade profit, since it doesn't affect my trade level at all, it doesn't affect my initial investment at all, it's not risk and it's, it's volatility. But where does, that, where does it go? And where it, where it goes is if you're going to manage the open trades, you're going to take smaller, you're going to have smaller winning wins. Your winning trades are going to be smaller, which is fine. You're, you're trading supposedly a more efficient system. So like all good money managers, as our system becomes better, the return and drawdown gets better, we can leverage it up and trade larger. So you supposedly have a superior and a better system with a higher sharp. And so you're going to trade larger. You have to trade larger to make the same amount of money because you're not making as much money as the crazies like Moritz and me. And so your average loss is going to have to be larger. And so once again, you're attacking that trade level, you're attacking the closed equity, sorry, the initial investment. I'm risking 50 basis points to make the same rate of return. Someone who takes small profits, sorry, it's, but it can be fine, I guess, but that's what it is. You're taking smaller profits. You're not letting your profits run. You may have to risk 60 or 70 basis points to make the same amount of money. And the defense is, well, the sharp is better. Maybe the system has more parameters and degrees of freedom. So you have to take that in consideration as well. Moritz and I are scaredy cats and we're trading very conservatively. And at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, and we know the truth about should we have been so conservative and so fearful of adding more variables and parameters to our system, we may be wrong. But the only downside is we'll probably make the exact same amount of money 
but we will have taken these unnecessary drawdowns. There was no reason to sit there with these open trades and let them slosh around and create all this havoc on a daily basis. It was perfectly fine with what others were doing, more enlightened people who were trying to be more concerned with the daily volatility. So that's the downside. Moritz and I will take these drawdowns that were sort of unnecessary. Maybe I'll just have a quick right of reply and then maybe we'll wrap this topic up because uh, I think we've, we've both kind of laid out our stalls and the, the viewer, the listener can make up their mind. So I do agree with, with Jerry that, that um, in my research has found that this fault targeting does indeed improve the Sharpe ratio, but the, the cost of that is, is reduced positive skew which is, you know, the sort of more technical way of describing the behaviour that Jerry says, where you're obviously taking some, lots of small losses and having bigger gains. So you end up with a, with a, with a system that, that is less kind of pure trend-following in character. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's kind of like one thing or the other. You can either say, well, I'm more interested in higher sharp or I'm more interested in positive skew. There are advantages and disadvantages to those. I'll just make two very quick points in defence of my position before we wrap it up. And one is that what I'm doing doesn't necessarily introduce any more parameters because I'm still just estimating volatility. I'm using exactly the same volatility that I used to estimate the initial trade size. So there's no additional parameter coming in there. Although I appreciate that there are ways of doing this that would result in a lot of parameters. And I'm just like Jerry and Moritz, very concerned about having too many parameters in my system. So I appreciate the concern there, but I don't think it's an issue for me. And the, the second point I would make is that you don't necessarily have to leverage your system up just because your sharp is higher. You can kind of take that as just as a reward for, um, I don't think that's, that's necessarily the case for me at least. I don't really f- believe that, that you'd have to do that. You, you, could, you could do, I mean, theoretically, it would make sense to, in, to do that, but also theoretically, if your system has less positive skew, that also means you should be more cautious about, about your leverage. So actually, the two things probably net each other off, and I wouldn't actually necessarily in- increase the leverage of a system just because the sharp was higher if the skew was going down as well. So anyway, there we go. But uh, yeah, I guess my point was that if you wanted to make the same 10% return or 12% return, whatever your target is, you would have to trade a little bit larger if you're cutting your profits shorter than... Uh, someone like uh, who's letting the profits run and yeah i'm not actually tested to see what happens to the the um the sort of natural standard deviation so i I'm, I'm i'd have to sort of check to see if i agree with you there or not you may well be correct but anyway yeah and then just to follow just to finish it uh i did want to say that um it is very critical in this area to not leave out the trade level that neil's talked about earlier and so the trade level calculation is kind of uh, off the beaten path as well so the way to make this work is you start with that million dollar investment and then you you trade all the trades for a long period of time based upon that one million dollars and like right now my trade level is probably from last summer so i have not changed every trade i'm doing with the same trade level my i'm i'm probably up 30 percent, and i haven't incorporated any of that profit into making my new trades bigger at some point in time, when all this open trade equity sorts itself out, and I'm no longer up 30%, but up 10 or 20 or whatever it will be, then I will incorporate that trade level, a new baseline, a new level to defend. And so this is critical. If you're every day changing your trade size based upon your mark-to-market equity, then it's much, much different. 
but in the opposite way, and this is uh, 1983, Turtle 101. So I haven't changed since 1983. How bad is that? I mean, that's the opposite of evolving. So the opposite of, of uh, that is to, do the, is to do the opposite with losing trades. So if this theoretical $1 million turns into 900,000, oh my gosh, I am changing that trade level very, very much. So I'm making it very difficult to lose money because now my, if I'm down uh, 10%, maybe I'll change my trade level to 800,000. So I'm trading very small. And so that's the kind of changes we want. When we're losing money, we're very defensive of that baseline trade level. And when we're making money, oh, we're very slow to increase the risk because these trades are sloshing around. They're, they're creating all sorts of volatility and chaos. And we don't want to penalize the new trades we're putting on with this updated equity level, which is not very stable. So yeah, just just to say, I do something similar actually. So um, if if I lose money, like at the moment, I'm in about probably about twelve percent drawdown, fourteen percent drawdown. So my positions are forty percent smaller than they would be if I wasn't in that drawdown. And again, I, I don't actually increase my position once I reach my high water mark. I keep a fixed level of capital. So you know, there's some similarities there. Maybe we should move on anyway. Yeah, no, that's interesting. But I do want to ask something that is not specifically to any of your two different methodologies, but I do think it's an interesting topic. And it kind of comes out of what happened last year with this very sharp sell-off and this equally sharp upside reversal. Because I think, and 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 this has sort of come up in in, in conversations uh, that uh, that I've listened to, but also in general in, in the industry, and that is normally we all use volatility as an input in our model and it's somewhat an important uh, input but usually it doesn't really matter very much how you do it <laughs> so to speak and, and maybe even the look back period of your volatility isn't that critical normally last year however it could have had a big impact on your performance partly because first it might have told you about how quickly to scale down your positions but also it would have informed your system in terms of your future positions going forward, which may then be too small, frankly, if you're uh, depending on what kind of volatility you were putting into your model. So I don't know if any of you have thought about these things after last year or whether you didn't even sort of think that was a uh, an issue from the way the markets behaved last year. Rob, do you want to? That's a really good point. I mean, uh, I saw some research after last year's meltdown from different CTAs about how important it was to the short term, getting short and getting out of your longs back in February, March was so important. So the shorter look back periods, the breakouts, for instance, were uh, so much more important if you were, you made a lot more money and saved money. But I don't remember seeing anyone separating out the fact that the position size on the shorts would have been dramatically impacted as well if your ATR look back was 100 days versus 10 days. That's a very good point. And so uh, I think it's worthwhile to separate those out. I'd just done some updated research on the look back periods. And um, I looked at uh, 10, 15, 20, 25 days. I think some people go back 100. And uh, there's like almost no difference if you look at enough data. I did a 100 day rolling as well. It's almost no difference. If you look at enough data, it kind of all looks about the same. But yes, that's the one of the problems of trend following. 
what I'm doing right now with my parameters makes a hell of a lot of difference with this recent short-term performance. What we're all doing with our parameters, they tend to be, the performance tends to be very similar if you look at enough data. Mm. And so clients are saying, why aren't you as good as Rob? And you're like, well, I, I don't know. I'm probably not, but you cannot pay attention to the short-term performance irrespective of, of anything. Yeah. We've, we've given our year-to-date numbers. That they're certainly not asking that, that question right now, Jerry, that's for sure. You're doing much better than I am this year. Um, yeah, no, I, I think Jerry's right. I think um, definitely clients um, have, have a, in my experience, um, back in the day when I had to worry about them, you know, do, do have an obsession with saying, well, you know, you did, what happened here in this, this particular month? What happened to your systems? And, you know, what, what are you going to do to fix it? But when you actually look over, and of course, you know, in any given month or scenario, it's likely that some particular change to your system, whether that be changing the length of the moving averages or the look back window for your vol or something else, will make will make a big difference. Of course it will. But, you know, you have to look over a lot of data. And the, the thing you're aiming for is a system that's as robust as possible, which means it will perform reasonably well in a variety of market conditions. So when I'm when I'm looking at this particular topic, what I like to to do is is not look at the actual performance of my trend following system for different look back periods, but to say how well does a certain look back period do at predicting volatility going forward? Because that's what the thing's for, right? The fact that it by coincidence may or may not improve your your trend following performance is is irrelevant. And actually, I found that improving your forecasting of volatility doesn't really help your trend following performance that much, to be honest, because it's a symmetric thing, right? So it might be that you look ahead and you say, oh, well, look, I've got this, you can even put a, a, a you know, a, a kind of perfect foresight into your model and say it can predict volatility one month forward. And that means sometimes it will see that vol in, in you know, two weeks higher is going to spike higher because of an event the system can't know about. And it will have smaller positions as a, res- as a result. Well, you know, roughly half of those positions will be profitable and about half will be loss making. So actually it doesn't really make much difference to the performance of the system. So to me, it's it's something that people get a bit hung up on. And you know, I have done some fairly intensive research on it just to satisfy myself that, as Jerry says, using a look back period of, say, between about, I don't know, 20 and 100 days, something like that, is pretty close. It doesn't make a lot of difference in forecasting vol. And secondly, it doesn't make almost no difference in terms of your performance of your system. So you know, to me, it's one of those things not to waste your time thinking about, frankly. Sure. Okay, good stuff. I think we've talked a lot about uh, these things. So let's move on to another topic that came up recently. And again, maybe, Jerry, I need you to set the stage from the uh, note you sent. And you can, we can uh, latch it together with the other point. But you had one point about shorts versus long, something that I know you and I talked about on Clubhouse, maybe was it this week? Do you want to address something with Rob on that, Jerry? I just thought we had a good discussion about shorts and the benefits. Yeah. Not sure if I've ever heard Rob talk about shorts, but I think um, towards the end we were talking with Mark, and I think that he started getting into maybe reasons not to do shorts or some of the other things to look at when you're doing shorts. So as this uh, Neanderthal trend follower, I'm just like, no, you can't look at shorts individually you can't look at sectors or longs the whole point of the back test is that you create this large sample size of trades one entry one exit a stop loss something like that maybe a couple of other things that you throw in there and in order to get the sufficient sample size 
or as much sample as you could possibly get. Maybe it's never sufficient. You need to pretend, trade all the markets the same and the longs and the shorts the same, and just pretend that all the trades are the same, whether they're coming from different markets and sectors or if they're longs or shorts. And your expectation per trade is, is all of those. It's, I know the, if, you, if you looked at the longs only, it would be higher than the shorts, but you're not supposed to do that. And we need more sample size, not less. And uh, we can't fine tune this. I know another thing that you said, Niels, which I didn't get a chance to talk about on Clubhouse was, I think both you and Mark were saying this, and this is something else that I don't really uh, want to think about. And that is, uh, well, you know, commodities have different uh, personalities and patterns and shorts. Well, you know, they, they're vi- they end violently, they end differently than longs end. Once again, I'm just going to close my eyes to all of that and say, yep, I guess that's possible. But in order to maintain the strictness of treating everything the same, all the trades, all the sectors, all the markets, longs and shorts, I'm not going to look at that data. I'm going to force myself to act like it's just all one big trade, one big way of treating all of the trades, and it's producing this sample size. So that's what I find to be very intriguing. I have over the years treated shorts differently, and I've just paid a huge price for that. What about you, Rob? Yeah, I mean, the reason I don't talk about shorts much is I think Jerry's in Florida and I'm I'm in the quite cold UK. It's going to be a few months before I'm wearing shorts again, that's for sure. Um, so, <laughs> but seriously, um, yeah, no, actually, so this is, this is a topic in which Jerry and I are very much on the same page, I suspect. So I do not treat um, sh- shorts and longs differently. I'd make another point. It's actually worse than he says in terms of reducing your sample size because in, in many markets, they've gone up more than they've gone down. I mean, if you look at the bond markets, say, or the, you know, the, the interest rate futures, the sample set I'm using, which is about 40, 45 years now, they've probably gone up 90% of the time. So to try and do something different when they're, they're going down, you're, you're reducing yourself down to just 10% of your, your sample set. And that, that you know, for me is a, a big concern. I'm very much of the opinion that barring extremely strong evidence, you should do everything the same. So trade all the instruments the same with a caveat that that I do look at trading costs because I think they're predictable. So I do trade more expensive markets more slowly. But but apart from that, I assume that all instruments have the same pre-cost returns for a given trading rule. I assume that longs and shorts are the same. And whenever I've I've gone out and looked and, and sort of tried to actually see if there's anything there, if you like, I've never found an effect strong enough that justifies moving away from that position. So f- for me, I guess I have a core value that that um, the system should be as simple as possible. And simplicity in this case means treating everything the same. And only if there's very strong evidence, well, can I be dragged away from it towards doing doing something differently? And and um, I've, I've never seen really, any time I've checked, that strong evidence. I mean, interestingly, at the beginning of this month, for a bit of fun, I, I did a I put a t- poll on Twitter and said to people, what, what should my blog post be about this month? Because, you know, I do a blog post every every month. And there were three options. And w- one was actually longs and shorts, but that didn't get enough votes. So I I haven't done any recent research on it, but certainly every time I've looked at it, I've, I've seen nothing that justifies me, me changing my position. So. And I think that, you know, things can change. Rates can go negative. Crude can go negative. We can see things we've never seen before. And one of these, you know, I'm frequently saying the CTAs were the only ones dumb enough to stay long bonds when rates approach zero. They're the only ones dumb enough to stay long stocks, the S&P, as valuations and the bubble, you know, over and over. 
Yeah, because we we just find those breakouts. We're anticipate we, we anticipate we can't predict. We make a lot of money on things that have never happened before, and the shorts may start to be as good as the longs one of these days. And then they're going to say the CTAs were the only ones dumb enough to do these full short positions. How did they know? Well, we didn't know, and you didn't know either. This evidence. Oh, there is tons of evidence for lots of things, but inside our little trend-following bubble, there is no evidence except uh, take those breakouts. Longs and shorts are the same, and uh, they break even. That's the issue. They break even, or they make a little bit on the shorts recently, historically, uh, in, in some of the sectors. So where is the downside? It's not like they're losing you tons of money, and let's figure out a way not to do them. I mean, I got destroyed last summer by not being short crude because I had a filter. Crude, heating oil, unleaded, and uh, lots of other markets. I had a great year last year, and, but I wasn't really short those markets. And they ended up not being good trades anyways. And I ended up knowing that for me to make profit in those trades, I would have had to exit them discretionarily. But the, the pain that I suffered during that period, a relative underperformance, I just said to myself, it's not worth it. So I had a better performance uh, after that when those shorts rallied and Moritz was still short, the crude, over and over. He would just talk about this all the time, still short, still short. I'm like, oh God, I mean, I would be too. But I would rather suffer that uh, every day, those small little losses of those shorts reversing than that huge underperformance that I had in that period. And it's not the only time that it's happened to me. So that's another thing, too, is that, well, Jerry, you're, you're talking about open trade equity. You're talking about daily performance. I thought you didn't care about it. No, it's not that I don't care. I don't like it, especially when I'm violating core principles and rules. And I, I'm not going to bring it upon myself, this uh, lack of performance. Yeah. One more really quick point, which is to point out the reason why people buy CTAs. They don't put all their money into a CTA. They've probably got a portfolio of stocks and bonds. And they're buying that CTA for diversification. And if you take out the short positions in CTAs, that's going to mean that when the stock market's going down, you're going to be flat, and you're you're going to have you're going to, you know you're going to basically increase your average correlation with stocks and bonds, and reduce the diversification properties that, that people are buying you for. So, I can sort of see some sympathy in 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 having a long bias if all of your money's in a CTA. But if, if, you know, if it's along with another portfolio of, of sort of long-only assets, then it's crazy to get rid of that, that sort of entire, almost, you know, you're cutting off the entire reason why people invest in CTAs in the first place. So, you know, for that reason alone, if, if an investor says to you, you know, well, how can we train the shorts? They're not profitable. You say, well, sorry, mate, you know, I'm, it's a hedge for you when I'm short with stocks, right? So you, you should be kind of sending me a bottle of champagne every, every month I'm short stocks. Mm. Yeah, and actually, just before we move on to the next point, and that's actually one of the things that I think got completely missed in the conversations last year, and that is because everybody looked at that reversal on the 23rd of March, and then to to some extent, you could say trend followers at that point were kind of caught on the wrong side of the trades because they were already short the equities and so on and so forth. But actually, that's exactly the positions you would want your CTA to have, even though it didn't make you money for the next two months or whatever, but had the central banks failed and not even shown up on the 23rd of March, that's where your protection comes from. So that's a really important point. Um, so final point before we move on to the questions that came in, you mentioned something that you had heard or read on, on Hedge Nordic about 
classic trend versus uh, hybrid trend following. Jerry, do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? Well, it's really just, get, I think, getting back to uh, our conversation on closed equity and ball targeting. Ball targeting. Right. And okay. so okay. I think there's pressure to evolve and uh, do something different other than trend following. And there's so many smart people involved in, with CTAs these days that it's just inevitable. They're not going to get their degrees, understand the math, and say, oh, I did this research and I have one entry, one exit, and a stop loss. You know, the, the temptation is just too great. So I don't think that you can outperform classic. I don't think hybrid is better, but everybody wants hybrid. I think they want something. Please do something. And I think when AHL and Winton and Transtrend and Aspect come along in the 90s and the 2000s and says, look at us. I know what you don't like, and I will give it to you. And this is just so obvious, and I think it's sort of free. This um, management of the open trades and the total portfolio volatility, it has no cost to it. And I think that was, is wrong. It, it, there is a cost, and there is a difference. I think it's, it hurts profitability, robustness. And I think for CTAs, defending the initial investment plus the realized profits, the closed equity, the trade level, defending that at all cost and being, and I think the, the best metric that uh, we could possibly have is frequently making money. I'm preserving your capital and I'm trading systems that yes, they have drawdowns, but the trailing 12-month return is amazing. It's the best. I couldn't find anything better. For my first 10 years in business, I made money every single year. And people were amazed by this. And I had these massive drawdowns that no one cared about. You have to be really educated and very intelligent and smart to figure out a way to say, we can do a lot better. And I did that, and my performance went in the toilet. And I finally reversed course. And that's why I'm so dedicated to promoting this sort of plain, simple, classic trend following. Trend following plus nothing, right? Exactly. Yeah, so I'm not going to revisit our early discussion, uh, obviously. I mean, pe people don't want to see, you know, uh, we were talking earlier about the, uh, you know, the big interview that's on this weekend of Harry and Meghan. So uh, I think there's enough kind of Anglo-American uh, conflict coming in over that without raising the heat with Jerry any more than we need to. But um, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of, obviously, you know, I've got I've got to be, I've got loyalty towards, you know, the AHL. I mean, AHL paid for my house, right? I mean, <laughs> it's been a few years since I've worked there, but obviously, uh, you know, I, I owe them a lot and uh, I, I like and respect them a lot. So, um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think um, it's wrong to say that this stuff is for free. So Jerry's right. It, it, it's, you know, that anyone who implies that is incorrect. You, you know, you, you, the way I think about risk and return is like a waterbed. You push down somewhere, it's going to pop up somewhere else. So if, if you are improving your sharp ratio, well, that's got to have a cost. And the cost, I think, is in, is in reduced positive skew. And I found that in my research. And I'm absolutely open and I, and I believe that. And for me personally, I'm happy to do that. And I'm aware of that. That's a trade-off I'm making and I'm completely fine with it. I think investors should be aware of that, of the, you know, of the, um, the fact that you, you can't just magic away risk. I think, it, I think, like I said earlier, it's one of these things that's fine in, in limited amounts. So um, if you go too far down this road, you can be really in trouble. Obviously, you know, Jerry's talked about the number of parameters. That's an issue. But also I think the issue is that the more risk you kind of hedge away, the more likely it is you're exposed to a risk you don't understand. 
I remember seeing someone doing some research um, and saying, look, I've produced this trend-following portfolio, but I've hedged out all of the risk factors. I've hedged out this factor, this factor, this factor, this factor. So you're just left with pure alpha. And I thought, oh my God, I'd much rather having something with a lower shot ratio, and I understand what the risks are, than having this thing, God knows what risk is exposed to. But there will be a risk it's exposed to. But it's a risk that I no longer understand because because of all this hedging, it's going to be something very, very, very subtle. And it's almost certainly going to result in a massive loss. So that that's the, the kind of end place you don't want to end up in. Jerry and I obviously differ in how far we are between the kind of most raw and basic trend following. And he called it Neanderthal, not me, right? So that's a label he's clearly happy with. I, I wouldn't go as far to say to say to say that, definitely not. I'm a little bit a little bit more sophisticated, but I grant that yes, the high shot ratio does does come at a cost and and you should be careful of any any fund that tells you that you know that they've completely got rid of all of these risks and it's all for free and that it's costing you nothing because it, it it will be introducing some kind of hidden danger into your system. But I think also the beauty of this is that we all have maybe slightly different ways of doing things and at the end of the day investors need to have a few of us in their portfolio, not just one. And, you know, that's probably a conversation for another day and a topic that I will certainly bring up at some point. Let's jump to the questions. There are four of those, I think, where that caught in. The first one is from Michael. Michael writes, I know Jerry trades breakouts and Rob trades moving average crossovers, but what are your thoughts on other trend signals? What about price versus moving average, SMA versus EMA, EMA, slope rate of change, etc.? Is there an objective reason that you prefer breakouts and moving average crossover, such as better performance or it makes more sense? Or is it one of many options that you've chosen because it suits you? best. I have a feeling what the Jerry's answer is going to be, but I'm not sure about you, Rob. So why don't you start? Okay. Um, actually, I correct the misconception. I do actually have breakouts in my system as well. So okay. I'm actually, I've got about six or seven different ways of measuring trends in my system. And I don't actually have a preference for any of them. They've got similar kind of risk weightings. So I'm actually pretty, pretty agnostic. I mean, to address some of the points the guy the guy made, so for example, specifically simple versus exponentially weighted moving averages, there's not a lot of difference in the performance. The, the main difference is that the exponentially weighted moving average is smoother, which means for a system like mine, where I adjust my positions depending on the strength of the trend when they're open positions, that's important for me. That results in lower trading costs without any effect on performance. So that's a benefit specifically for the kind of system I run. If I was running a system that was just open trade stop loss, then I wouldn't be bothered about using moving average or exponentially. It wouldn't make much difference. So, so yeah, I'm 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 not one to stand up and say, "Oh, this is better than this." I actually use a variety of things, and um, where I've made things slightly more complicated by, for example, using the exponentially weighted, it's it's to reduce costs and to make things a bit smoother rather than necessarily because I think that that's you know infinitely superior than than to say a a simple moving average or a simple breakout because I. I don't think that's true. Jerry, I think we all know why you use breakout. But the question is, have you looked at other things since what you were taught? Yes, I've looked at moving averages. I did grow up on breakouts. I like the breakouts for a couple of reasons. One is that um, they're, they're harder to deal with with open profits. They don't, you get a certain level of comfort with that moving average moving up every day as the market rallies. 
and then you look at your breakout and it's a stair step and it hasn't moved up at all. Today's massive new high in copper did not move your breakout. And so I think as human nature goes, we'd much prefer the moving average that moves up and locks in that profit. You feel so good about locking that in. Thus, I'm going to be perverse and choose the breakout. Another thing too is that I grew up on these breakouts and selling the lows and buying the highs. And sometimes in the moving averages, you're not selling the low. You're not buying the high. And I, that just freaks me out. I can't do that. I mean, that, no, 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 no. I'm not going to. Moving average has this funky calculation. And as the market has rallied a little bit off the lows, now I'm going to go short. I can't pull the trigger on that idea. And then I think Moritz was talking about the momentum. Is it there like the 12-month look back? That can give off some crazy buys and sells as, as well. So as much as I pride myself on being in every walk of my life of being very open-minded and curious and willing to change in an instant, if I see evidence, copy other people, I spent a life, a career of trying to copy other people, read everything that these famous traders have written or said, I have to admit that with the breakouts, I cannot change. And it, maybe it is due to growing up on breakouts. Yeah, no, I think that's a great answer. Actually, I think we're going to stay on the topic a little bit because the next question is from Rene. Rene writes, first of all, thanks for your inspiring weekly podcast. Listening to it really helped me and shaped me in becoming a trend-following trader. So well done on that, Rene. After intensive testing and of trend strength indicators, which are used to determine the level of risk taken in a specific position, I'm still not really satisfied with it whether it is the rate of change kind of measurement or a signal-to-noise kind of indicator, they all have the same flaw. When a long-term range is built up and a breakout occurs, the value of these indicators are very low, even though the breakout of a long sideways range can be of high quality or a high-quality setup for starting a trend. Is it possible for you to discuss one, what type of strength measurement can be beneficial? And two, how to cope with the above-mentioned flaw without giving any of the secret sauce away, of course, he writes. So thanks for the question, Renee. Um, Rob, do you want to take that? Because I think you were kind of nodding uh, no, along the way. No, I was thinking, God, I hope Jerry answers this question before me because <laughs> <laughs> I suspect he's going to have far more intelligent things to say about it. But if he wants me to go first, I will. But I'd rather he, I'd rather he went first. <laughs> I'm not sure I understand the question, but it does remind me of something that I disagreed with Rob on, I think, since he's here, he can uh, correct, he can uh, tell me how, what he really believes. But this whole idea of, uh, I think you said something in one of the podcasts, trading the better trades better, the, when it gets stronger, I add to the position, the strength of the trend. And so I don't really think that there is any such thing in my a thought process of the strength of the trend. Quite the opposite. I think one of the things that you have to do to get that sample size is let in some C-plus trades along with your A's and B's. So on purpose, you have to have a system that does not favor the strongest trends by some sort of measurement, uh, an objective uh, relative strength or whatever. But So I don't understand anything other than when my entry criteria is satisfied, I get into the trade. But I'm not really um, measuring uh, strength or relative strength. You know, for instance, um, 
gold broke out first a year or whatever ago, then silver, platinum did nothing. Now platinum is way stronger. So this is like, yeah, I'm not paying attention to relative strength. I'm not paying attention to correlation. These things come and they go. I'm closing my eyes. I have a profit on the trade. I'm, I'm going to try to ignore it as much as I can. And oops, now platinum's stronger. And I did nothing except buy platinum when the entry criteria was satisfied. So I don't think I really understand that question or agree that uh, all the trades are created equal if your entry criteria has been satisfied. Yeah, so I'll, I'll quickly explain the, the point that Jerry raised and then I'll try and answer the question. So yeah, in my research, I found that, for example, if you look at um, the difference between two moving averages, so a moving average crossover, the wider apart those moving averages are, in other words, the stronger the trend is, the higher your expected risk-adjusted return will be from the point you're holding that trade. What that means is as a trend strengthens, you will add to the position. That's the behavior you get from, from sort of setting things up that way. It's kind of true up to a point because there comes a point when actually that doesn't seem to make sense anymore. And, and the way I deal with that is I kind of have a cap on how much risk I'm willing to take. So I'll move to like twice my average position. And then if the trend continues to strengthen, I won't add to it anymore effectively. So, so that, that's why I do that. And it, it, does, it does seem to work. And the evidence is quite strong. And even accounting for things like Jerry says about sample size, which obviously concerns me as well. Now, as to the question, um, I'm not sure I understood it either, to be honest, which is why I was trying to throw Jerry onto the onto the bonfire there. But um, so let me just to re yeah. recap the question. I mean, I think the question is very simple. I mean, what type of strength measure can be beneficial? You just described yeah. one where you look at the difference between the two moving averages. Yeah. That's one. Okay. And then there was this thing about the rate of change kind of measure or signal to noise where Rene feels that when you then get a big breakout, actually what it does, it limits the size of your position. So the significance of the breakout kind of gets penalized potentially by position sizing accordingly. Yeah, so um, the way I do breakouts is probably quite different from, from Jerry because what I actually do is the moment something's been, is kind of above its sort of long-term trend, if you like, I'm already buying into it. And by the time it's reached the extreme of the price, in other words, when the, the breakout, quote-unquote, has occurred, that's when I'd actually have a maximum position. So that's how I kind of use this notion of forecast strength in breakouts. So that that was that's the way it, work, it seems to work in terms of the fact that, again, if you do that, there is a, um, a relationship between how strong that forecast is and what the risk-adjusted returns are. But that's another way of saying that actually when a price reaches a limit, which is breaking out, well, that's the point where you're going to make the most money. So that, that's just another way of restating the way that, that Jerry trades. It's just that I'm, I'm buying in earlier because I've, of the way my system doesn't have binary signals. It has to have a, a notion of a con something that's continuously moving. So I've kind of translated the, the, the Neanderthal uh, way of doing breakouts into, into a, a, continue, a continuous system. So that would deal with the... the that's one way of doing it, if you like. Anything, I mean, some of the things he's talking about, they sound quite complicated and overfitted and overparameterized to me. And to me, it's a, it sounds like a classic example of looking at a trading system and saying, well, I don't like the way this behaves. How can I change it? And, and I'm always worried about doing that, about going down that route. So I, I'd be quite uncomfortable about, about, you know, about suggesting anything because I'm, I'm you know, to me, it sounds a bit dodgy. Yeah, well, and I just want to say, to Rene, that I actually think what what uh, Rob just said there is actually quite important. And that is, I think for most people, one of the 
challenges you're going to face is you're going to want to overcomplicate your system. And and that 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 in itself is really something that none of us would advocate. So so trying to figure out, you know, exactly how strong is the trend, maybe that doesn't really matter. The the important thing is you get into the trend and you have some simple ways of determining when that is and kind of make a lot of the points that Jerry has made earlier, you know, just just keep it simple, really. And I think maybe one of these days we'll get into another topic with the research process. And I think when you do a back test and you have this one entry, one exit, and a stop loss, and you look at this is really good performance. I mean, I really like this. We have made so much money and we're very consistent. We make money almost every year, maybe until we got past 2010, let's say. So <laughs> then though, but we can do better. Let's do better. Let's look at some of those trades. Did you see these trades in this period where we lost all the profit back? And somebody is on the other shoulder should be saying, seriously, you want to mess with this? The long-term performance is not good enough. Oh, we can do so much better. And that's where trouble starts. You can't do better. I mean, you want to do better. Maybe you can do better. Maybe you can become longer term, add to diversification. Your stop losses can be a little uh, longer term. You don't want to be chopped around so much. Maybe you could trade multiple breakouts. There's many ways to make things better that don't have any impact on robustness and sample size. So I think that's to sum up one of my 10 commandments of trend following. Yeah, absolutely agree with you there, Jerry, definitely. Yeah, love it. All right, let's move on to um, another question. This is from Doogie. First question that maybe you can uh, quickly answer, otherwise I can, uh, Rob. Are there any CTA funds available for average UK investors? All I can say here, Doogie, is the firm I work for, we have a users fund, so that's certainly available for any UK investor. But there are, I should say, in fairness, there are quite a few usage funds nowadays that are CTA-based. So maybe um, I would say 10, 15 of those. So yeah, you can easily find that. Yeah, it's it's the usage fund is the most accessible vehicle for a retail investor to invest in this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not 100% sure what the latest is with the whole Brexit thing and what's happening with usage. So um, that might be a wrinkle. No change. No, no change, change yeah. on that. That's, yeah, no well, change good. on that. Yeah, so, um, yeah, there are, you know, quite a few of the leading firms, um, as well as Niels's firm, offer usage funds. So that's the route I would go down if, if I was to do that myself, yeah. Do any of you trade any pairs, spreads? And if so, what are some of the key lessons learned? I'm going to just read the next couple of questions because then you can think about a, a, a joint answer since we're already at one hour and 15 minutes almost. Also, why has Rob not bought into Bitcoin futures yet. Uh, they've seen a great, they've been great for trend following. From my experience, trend following and market making returns seem to be correlated. Is this the view of the top traders? Uh, and if so, any thoughts on why such correlation exists? So a few uh, mixed questions there. Rob, I'm going to send it to you first, since uh, the question actually was sent to you. Okay, so the first question was about spreads, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, so um, at the moment, I'm not trading spreads. I have done in the past, um, particularly in fixed income. I'm, I'm actually planning to um, research and implement some spread trading systems, hopefully this year. So it's something I'm going to come back to. Things to be aware of are obviously there's ex there's sort of different it's a different kind of risk. So if you're trading, say, a calendar spread in say crude or euro dollar futures, something like that, you're trading two things that, that are very highly correlated. 
So you're going to be tempted to put a lot of leverage on that position to achieve a particular risk, a particular return. And obviously you need to be quite careful there because, you know, if those correlations drop, then you could be in, in serious trouble. There's a bit of potentially execution risk. So calendar spreads are a bit more straightforward because you, you can just execute them. You can go to market and say, give me a price for this spread. But if you're doing something like um, trading, say, um, two suffice tens US bonds, that's three separate futures contracts that throw, you need to execute a basket of. So you've you've got some complexity there. So so yeah, they're, they're, um, they're a nice source of diversified return because there is a little bit of correlation between saying trading spreads and interest rates and trading the outrights. There is some correlation there. It's not completely undiversified, but um, it's definitely a source of, of additional performance. But but yeah, the, you've got to be a bit careful with the with your risk management. So and the Bitcoin, Rob, you're trying to avoid that. Yeah, I mean, the honest answer about Bitcoin futures specifically is I just don't have enough capital. So um, you know the si- the size of the position and the risk required just far outstrips the because I'm only trading my own money nowadays. So I'm obviously I've I've been disparaging about Bitcoin as a as an asset class. But as Jerry said earlier, that doesn't matter. That's irrelevant. The fact is, it's an asset you can trade, and it's un- got, you know it's uncorrelated to my other assets. So in an ideal world, I would probably trade it. The re- the only reason I don't is is because of the the capital requirements. And the third question was something about correlation between market making and trend following, which I'm not entirely sure of myself. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't see that at all. I mean. For starters, there are different kinds of trading. So market making is a bit more of a convergence type strategy. You're, you know, you're relying on the market kind of mean reverting to make profits. If the market goes into a strong trend, you're going to lose money, right? Because you know the market will gap and you'll be stuck holding inventory you don't want. And the other thing is, of course, the time frames are completely different. I mean, market makers operate on, well, nowadays time frames of fractions of a second, whereas you know we're we're much longer term. We're into holding periods of weeks and months. So. I would be surprised if if there was much correlation between those those two kinds of trading, and you know, I I, I have not seen that at all, to be honest. Okay, I'm going to go to the next question, the final question, but I'm going to put that to Jerry first, then instead, and that is uh, from Gustavo. Gustavo writes: How do you manage to switch from one system to another in terms of trades and capital? When to stop putting trades on the old system? Do you leave open trades on of the old system, even if it means capital breach for a short period? Not entirely sure about what what is meant by capital breach. So let me start with that, Jerry. Again, I kind of know what you're going to answer, I think. I hate to be so predictable, Niels, but maybe I'm just predictable to you since we've maybe. known each other so long. That's true. And I, I definitely repeat myself over and over. I think we should do a show, podcast, or a chat, a clubhouse on uh, Bitcoin trading, mm-hmm. trend following, okay. and on the spread trading. So I think what he's saying is this dilemma of, uh, I have a new, and I've done this many times over the years, I have a new system. I mean, the, you know, the day you do this research and you get the results back and the team is like, hey, we're going we're gonna to implement these new systems and they're going to be so amazing and we're going to, I mean, no, life is great. And uh, it's just one of the best days ever, you know, it, it never pans out that way. But I think uh, he's talking about what do you do when you going to switch systems. And I think it's totally okay to realize that you're too short term. That's what I usually do. Oh, I think we're being a little too short term with this one system. Let's increase the look back or vice versa. We're too, we're too long term. Let's decrease it. Um, so I think you just throw those positions on. You know, you just say, okay, here are the new positions. Uh, we've got some 
uncomfortable adjustments to make, reducing here, adding there, you probably just should go ahead and just throw it on and do it and then start trading the new system as soon as possible. Back in 2007 or so, we had a major change in our look-back periods and uh, or something like that. Uh, entries, we were spacing the entries out. Let's space the entries out. We think this is going to be really great. So um, we decided to do that. So one day I went into my research department. I said, okay, are we ready? And they're like, well, just to let you know, this is like the first quarter of uh, 07 or something. The old systems are performing so much better this year than the new systems. Oh, really? Yeah. So do we want to... <laughs> So you can see this is just silliness. And so we just kept hesitating and hesitating to change anything because we were influenced by the short term. Uh, so, and this is what happens. As soon as you make the change, there's a cost to research. There's a cost to improvement. And that is, we're going to zig, we should have zagged. The old systems now do better. Oh my gosh. So you just don't look at what you used to trade. Implement the new stuff as soon as possible. Don't look back. Don't torture yourself. Yeah, and I think that's the predictability that I was referring to is just keep it simple, right? That's really the answer you would want to go with every time. So uh, so that's great. Also, there's another question here. With a non-binary system of trend following, when we get a signal to partially reduce contracts, do we apply last in, first out? Or first in, first out? I think that mathematically is the same, but not sure. What is your methodology? I don't... Okay, go ahead, uh, Rob. Yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm the, I'm the non-binary guy here, so I guess I'll take right. the question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I guess, the as far as I understand it, the only difference between these two essentially is for, for tax purposes. So when you actually go, if you're trading futures, when you actually go to the exchange and say, right, I want to sell a future, the exchange doesn't say to you or your broker doesn't say to you, oh, do you mean the one you bought in, in March or the one you bought in April? They're, they're completely fungible. It just, just takes one out of your position. Now, the tax people see that differently. The tax people will, will say, okay, which, which future are you selling? They, they want to know because they want to compare the prices of those two things to, to calculate what your um, taxable profit's going to be. I'm talking about in the UK. I, I obviously don't know how it works in the US, uh, but I would imagine it the, the some similarities because all tax authorities have this view of things. So, yeah, it's what, whatever the tax authority says, that, that's the rule you've got to follow. If the tax authority says, well, it's the one you bought first, then then that's what you should do. If it's the one you bought last, then that's what you should do. And if it's something more complicated, then again, you have to, to do that as well. So, But in terms of actually trading, it's not really a thing. You, you, it's just selling things that you already own. And it doesn't matter you know, whether you're selling the last one or the first one. It, it's, it's not even really a thing that exists. The final question from Gustavo is also definitely for you then, Rob, because he talks about whether one would change the moving averages if volatility changes. So, for example, if AT, ATR is rising, do you increase, decrease the moving average period uh, to make it more or less sensitive? So that would be for you as well. The the short answer is no. Um, actually, And I don't know whether this is a coincidence, but I actually, actually did some research this on this and published it in my blog just last week. So I did actually research that and I did find that although there was a, a very slight effect in that when volatility rose, faster systems seem to do a bit worse. As I said earlier, unless there's very strong evidence that I should not do the simplest thing, I'm, I'm going to stick to the simplest thing. So for me, the evidence wasn't strong enough to actually justify, say, reducing or turning off fast trend-following systems when volatility is rising. And the interesting thing about that result was it was actually completely different from the kind of anecdotal experience when, say, in March last year, 
fast trend following seemed to do particularly well when volatility went up. But when I actually looked at it on a market-by-market basis, rather than just considering what the kind of macro level of vol was, I found the opposite effect again. So I wouldn't bother, to be honest. I don't think there's any value in, in, in introducing that kind of complexity into your system. Sure. Great stuff. Let me quickly run through the performance where we stand uh, so far this month on the indices, and then we'll come back to a few final thoughts. Um, Beta 50 index up about a quarter percent uh, and up about 3% for the year. The SockGen CTA index up 10 bips so far this month, up 1.73 for the, for the year. SockGen trend index up 0.4%, up three and a quarter so far this year. And by the way, I should say this is as of Thursday. I think Friday was a good day, so add a little bit to that. SockGen short-term traders index down 35 basis points for the month, down 1% so far this year. Trend barometer finished uh, Friday at 52, so that's indicating a good environment in general for trend followers. Now, before we talk about uh, maybe some of the things that we've noticed this week, a good resource, something interesting, I just want to say that we do try now on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern time, we do try, as Jerry was indicating, we do try to do a session on Clubhouse. So if you follow me, if you are on Clubhouse, not everyone is on Clubhouse. Rob, for example, not yet. But if you are on Clubhouse, follow me, follow Jerry, and then you will uh, get a notification when we create the event. And then you, uh, if we do it, then come and ask questions and it'll have, be our chance to have like a, a real live conversation and not just a one-way communication as we've done for years on the podcast. So we enjoy that and we've had some good sessions so far. So um, by all means, when we do it, and I don't promise it'll be every week, just uh, look for the notification. Now, um, interesting pieces of content. If anything uh, that you uh, came across recently, uh, Rob, anything that you uh, want to point out? Uh, yeah, it's quite interesting because uh, Jerry, Jerry's trading bond ETFs and um, I myself actually own a few bond ETFs in my long-only portfolio. So there's a very interesting piece that came out um, from the BIS, the, the Bank of International Settlement. It's a research paper and it's about how um, bond ETFs are kind of created and, and redeemed and about the, the basket of underlying assets that are used when that happens. And it it was very interesting for me because um, I think we treat ETFs as a black box as like something that just works like magically, um, but actually that there's a lot going on under the hood, and I, I think it's important to be some of the more subtle risks involved with with trading these things. So, uh, yeah, I found that I found that very interesting. Cool. Anything on your side, Jerry? Well, I just wanted to say that um, I did listen to a good podcast this week. Most of the good podcasts I listen to are yours, Niels. But uh, I did listen to RCM, the derivative, with uh, Wayne and Wayne's partner. Yeah. And uh, I just wanted to say that there was some negative talk about Clubhouse. And I think Clubhouse is amazing, and I think it's great. And uh, who would have thought that uh, talking was better than 240 characters? But that's what it is. And when I first got on Clubhouse, I thought, oh, this is amazing. It's going to have some ups and downs, but uh, congratulate you. I don't, I don't see that a lot of people who have a microphone and can control what's being said, podcasting or media, are going to like Clubhouse. But uh, congratulations to you for embracing Clubhouse and making all of this so much better that we can get on there and discuss things on Wednesday and uh, bring in lots of other people who can get on and ask us questions and challenge us and make it just uh, so much more than a podcast only. And um, since Rob's not on podcast, I'll, I know he'll trust me to 
summarize everything he said, and I'll point out all the places he was wrong on this podcast. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> Rob's going to go out and buy an iPhone over the, <laughs> over the weekend. I've got to get it before Wednesday. I've got a deadline now. I'll have an invitation, because you know, it's invitation only, Rob. And so I will bestow an invitation on you as soon as you give me the go-ahead where you have converted over to an iPhone. So you can defend yourself okay. properly. Okay. All right. I look forward to that. Thanks, Jerry. Okay, cool. Excellent. Good stuff. Yeah. And by the way, uh, I just want to add uh, that we do try on Clubhouse to keep our sessions to one hour so it doesn't just go on and on and on and you never know when it's going to finish. So come and join us most Wednesdays, 1 o'clock p.m. Eastern time and uh, just follow us and then you'll get the notification. For my particular resource this week. Um, it wasn't really a podcast uh, or anything like that. But there's a couple of things that I found just interesting, nothing to do really with, well, the first thing has nothing to do with trading, but it did disturb me. So I did tweet about it earlier this week. So you could go through my few tweets that I do uh, every week and you can find this. It's, this was a video I found a news report about how Pfizer actually allegedly holds certain countries and governments hostage in their negotiations about vaccines, how they demand total immunity for any issues that may arise from their products and demanding government property or security for these things. I mean, it was pretty shocking if there's any truth to this. And of course, Pfizer is the company where the CEO managed to sell or, you know, uh, to do his option, uh, um, what do you call it, exercise on the day where they announced that they had the vaccine ready. So uh, that in itself, I thought was a little bit dodgy. But anyways, that was one thing I found. The other thing I found was a video on YouTube um, that I heard referenced. It was at a BitBlog Boom 2019 conference where a guy called Michael Brackett Bitstein, Brackett and Goldstein, talked about Bitcoin rhetoric which I found, quote-unquote, interesting to say the least, not just because what it suggests about Bitcoin, but actually what I think it also does is it showcases how the world of finance has really changed and what is really driving prices nowadays on many assets. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. It was concerning, but it might be worth checking out. So anyways, and then you can make up your own mind, of course. If you haven't already left a rating and review, if you uh, wouldn't mind, because it really helps. We got some good ones in this week as well. So always very appreciative, but we can't get enough, frankly. So uh, if you would do that, head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. Of course, if you liked what we are saying, that's pretty much it from Jerry, Rob and me. Thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, take care and be well. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.